Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so, Professor covered a lot of material earlier, all the way from credit unions, the new synonym for uh, what might become of banks, through to US defaults and the quantity theory of money. So, questions and comments? I would like to add something. Okay. Question. Right. Okay. I uh, want to say something more about Milton Friedman. He and Anna Schwartz, I think Anna Schwartz is still alive. Milton Friedman died about four or five years ago, but Anna Schwartz, 96 or something, uh, two together wrote this very famous book, The Monetary History of the United States from 1867 to 1960. No competition to Benjamin Anderson's book, which uh, they are comparable because they are both talking about monetary history of the United States. Uh, the aim of Anderson is much more modest. Anyhow, in this book, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz say that gold was nationalized by Roosevelt in 1933 in order to capture profits for the government that were to accrue to the holders of gold. The government didn't want people to benefit from it. They wanted to capture these profits, so they had to nationalize gold even though it was unconstitutional. The Constitution says you cannot take property away from people without due processes. And uh, they are quite satisfied with that. Of course, the government wants to be the umpire judge what is right, what is wrong, and the government should own that, should appropriate that profit. Now, a fellow Democrat of President Roosevelt in the 30s, by the name Gore, Senator Gore from Oklahoma, described the same sequence of presidential moves of appealing to the patriotic feelings of citizens to turn in their gold voluntarily to the government. And it was suggested by him, by Roosevelt, that it was only a temporary measure. The gold will be returned to them after the banking panic subsides, which of course never happened. The panic did subside, uh, uh, did uh, calm down, but the gold was never returned. The government kept the gold and kept the profits. <coughs> So there was this Senator Gore. He was a great man. You have to know that he was blind, I think from birth, 
but I'm not sure about that. In Anderson, you will find the story. That's where I got the story. A great senator from Oklahoma, being blind, but he trained himself in monetary economics. And when he became elected, he thought that uh, as a senator, he has to know monetary theory in order to discharge his duties. So uh, as a blind man, just imagine the hardship or handicap which he had. He uh, tried to train himself in an esoteric subject such as monetary theory, monetary economics. And he did. He was one of the experts in Congress who did know what he was talking about, whereas all the others just kept talking without knowing what they were saying. So this Senator Gore described the same act of Roosevelt in the following words, and I quote, it's in, in your book. Henry VIII approached total depravity as nearly as the imperfections of human nature would allow. But the vilest thing that Henry ever did was to debase the coin of the realm. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Earlier, when President Roosevelt asked the senator, the president called in some, they were both Democrats, mind you. The president uh, was, and so was Senator Gore. They were Democrats. And the president called in the senators, the Democratic senators, to the White House for a conference. And then he asked the question for their opinion about the measures he took to save the country from the banking panic. each senator what they thought, and of course he expected high praise from every one of them, and he got that high praise from almost everyone, but Senator Gore said the following, why, Mr. President, that's just plain stealing, isn't it? Well, this is reported in Benjamin Anderson's Economics and the Public Welfare. It's also part of the story that uh, the next time when Gore had to stand for re-election, the president took care of it that he will be defeated in the primaries. And he never got elected again due to this criticism of the president. But in those days, this could happen. There were still 
upright people in the Congress. Now, today, still are some. I would consider Ron Paul of Texas as an upright politician, but of course, he ran for the Senate several times and never made it. And uh, now he's too old, and probably he will not be able to run. They say uh, that he uh, is grooming his son to become a politician, and uh, I think he... His son will work as a Senate. And I think Virginia is not a senator. Ah. Uh, uh, Rand Paul. Ah. Now what about this uh, fellow from in Indiana, I think? Uh, Pence. You heard his name? Pence? The governor? Hmm? The governor or senator? I think sen uh, congressman in the house. Right. Never heard his name? Well, make a mental uh, note that you want to know who Pence is because uh, he uh, seems to be, and uh, he's an upcoming star according to the rumor mills. And he is convinced that gold has to play a role in order to stabilize the situation. That's the extent of my knowledge, and I would have liked to find out more about him. But <laughs> From this distance, it's it's difficult. That depends which which role. Hmm? That depends which role it will. Depends on. On which role it will play. I I don't know anymore. I wish I did. Okay, now please continue. You had a question, and I uh, brushed it aside because I uh, I like to present my. That was not a question. I just. Position to do what? To, to, to pay remedy. Remedy? What's yeah, that? Like, like uh, reparations. Oh, reparations, okay. For, for the damage they did during the Second World War. Though they were looting uh, around the, the whole Far East yeah. and they had a tremendous money at the end of the war. Wow. These, these were the Americans who. Uh, I'm, I'm very sorry, I don't see it that way at all. I mean, your question assumes that Japan is the only uh, guilty party in the uh, story how World War got started. And it ignores the provocation which was going on against Japan. Yeah. The, uh, there, there was a blockade. There was, uh, the, the United States tried to block Japan's access to resources. Well, I haven't finished. I'm yeah. sorry. I allowed you to finish what you had to say. But, and, uh, 
and uh, th there are documented stories that you didn't read no, I, I, no, I'm sorry. I, I would like to finish. If I started to say something, I'd like to finish. There is a story which is credibly documented that the Americans were able to break the military code Japan used, the Navy and the Air Force and so on. And uh, the story of the uh, Pearl Harbor disaster when the Japanese uh, attacked Pearl Harbor and bombed it and destroyed the uh, American fleet which was anchored in Hawaii. This is something which the Americans knew about and the the uh, report was given to the president, and the president, that's Roosevelt, and he ordered the story to be suppressed, which was not going to be acted upon. He wanted Japan to destroy the fleet, to give <coughs> the public sufficient reason to be upset and then the war could be declared. He wanted the war. This is documented now. Perhaps it's distorted or whatever, but the fact is that a lot of young American servicemen died because it was convenient for the president to whip the people into frenzy over this uh, atrocious act of attacking, you know. Now, but before that, before that, um, the, uh, you know, you see, Roosevelt had a problem. He wanted to join the war very badly. The war was going on already. This the year is 1940. To December the 8th, I think. And the war was already in its third year. And there was one reason why the president could not join the war. And the reason was that he didn't have the votes in the House. Because according to the Constitution, only Congress can declare war. The president cannot. The age of kings declaring war and having that pet wars here, pet wars there, is over. That's why America was born as a republic. No king, no president can declare war. It's the Congress. Because who is going to bleed is the sons of the parents who send their representatives to Congress. And if these congressmen have to stand for re-election within two years, and the people don't like the war, 
then he won't be re-elected. As simple as that. And the president did not have the votes in Congress. If he proposed declaration of war against Japan or Germany or whoever else, would have been rejected. America was, as far as the population is concerned, up here with wars, with World War I, and the futility of shedding blood on European soil for no real purpose. Because when America made the proposal of the famous 14 points of Wilson at the peace conference, he was just laughed out of court. What the hell? You, you better keep quiet. And, uh, this is our business. This is Europe. This is not America. We do business the way we want. And then they just went on and dictated the peace. Now, so Wilson had to go home and the peace treaty of Versailles was, was it ever ratified by America? I forget, I forget, I'm, I'm no expert on this. But one thing is sure, the League of Nations was not. And the United States never joined the League of Nations, which was a creature of the Versailles Peace Conference. Now, what is a fact is that uh, America, not America, but Roosevelt, wanted to join the war badly, but he knew the votes weren't there. Not only Congress would oppose, but people. People were fed up. This is America. Now, we are different. We did not come overseas, and our ancestors didn't come here because we wanted to continue the old dirty game of kings. And so let them finish their business. So the country had to be whipped into action. And for that purpose, uh, well, I'm, I'm not making a case for Japan, please understand. Uh, Japan had all kinds of atrocities and uh, invaded China and did lots and lots of dirty things. But with all that, I cannot see how this underhanded trick to push the nation into war to begin with, and then to end the war with dropping the A-bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, when they could have called the high command of the Japanese military and demonstrate the devastating nature of the bomb and say, we give you a week to decide whether to surrender or else. Uh, that they could have done, and this would have been understood. But to drop the bomb, a bomb on uh, innocent people without knowing the consequences what the hereditary, you know, genetic and all kinds of complications with, from radiation would be. That was in here. Of course, that wasn't the sin of Roosevelt, that was the sin of the successor, Truman, because he gave the order. But anyhow, the point is that America did all the tricks 
to provoke Japan into war. And that's what the Japanese did. They uh, had this uh, uh, action destroying the American fleet in Pearl Harbor. So I'm sorry if you want to pass a moral judgment on Japan, then you would have to take these things into account. And I, I don't see <laughs> the reparation, you know. Uh, by the way, Germany didn't have to pay reparation to the Americans after World War II, and there's a good, there was a good reason for that. Uh, according to Keynesian economics, it's self-defeating. Well, by the way, Keynes was against the Versailles Peace Treaty because it said that this is self-defeating to have the type of reparation which Germany had to pay after World War I. And since Keynes was the prophet, they did not, the Allied powers did not apply, did not demand reparations after World War II. And uh, in any case, the devastation was so great uh, in World War II that there was nothing to pay reparations. And, and that was what that you congratulated the Germans to pay? Hmm? Then, then what was you, you congratulated the Germans to pay out? What was? I'm sorry. So I'm not... When we were in Munich. You congratulated the Germans oh. to, to, to finish their, their, pay, their pay. Oh, Germany did pay to Russia mm. to for, gee, well, there are people more qualified than I am to say what, you know, uh, it was not to the United States, and it was not to... Not to the United States, and I am not uh, speaking about the 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 thing the Japanese should pay for it for the United States either. Well, I, look, I think I have said what I wanted and I have nothing to add to this. Okay. So please go I was, on. I was not disputing with you. Hmm? I was not disputing with you. Well, you... Well, right. So that, you know, that's why I'm concerned. Uh, I have nothing more to say on the subject. Really? If anybody is interested in more of the, the Pearl Harbor thing, there's a book out there called Scapegoats. And it was written to show what happened to the animal uh, in charge of Pearl Harbor, who was then blamed for all this. While he was acting under orders from Washington to gather all the airplanes onto a runway, uh, put the patrols on the other side, and basically allow the Japanese to make their attack. And it, took, it was decades and decades later, and people were fighting for these uh, admirals who were court-martialed. Mm -hmm. So there, there's a good book out there called Scapegoats. <coughs> any, any questions, comments? We went through a lot in the first, uh, in, in the lecture series, uh, before the break, so. <coughs> no questions? Okay.
Well, in that case, I, I can add a little more, which I was planning to do in the first hour, but ran out of time. I want to make some comments on the Federal Reserve System, the early days. As you probably know, it was, it opened, the, there are 12 Federal Reserve Banks. The Federal Reserve Board originally was just an overseeing body. It was not a decision-making body. These were supposed to be commercial banks, the 12. And uh, they opened their door for business in 1914 which is the year when World War I started. And the uh, Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was rushed through, I would even say railroaded through Congress in, uh, in the last few days of 1913. In fact, the the Congress was ready to go home for the Christmas, and on December the 23rd, the votes were there, and the bill was put on the desk of Wilson, President Wilson, and he signed it, and they were in business. And of course, it took about half a year to organize the thing, so the banks were opened the door for business about the same time when the war broke out. Now, it is common practice nowadays on the part of the sound money movement to blame the Federal Reserve lock, stock and barrel. And I am not one who joins this crowd for the following reason. The document itself, which is the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, is not a perfect document. There are many problems with it, but basically it is not beyond uh, repair. Basically, it is a document which prescribes the central bank to act as a commercial bank. So in other words, it is solidly on the basis of the real bills doctrine of Adam Smith. And I, believe me, I've gone through it and I looked at it and tried to argue with myself and others and I found that the opposition to the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 is basically because it embraces the real bills doctrine as opposed to the quantity theory of money. And people nowadays find it fashionable to dismiss the real bills doctrine out of hand. So they dismiss the act, uh, Federal Reserve Act of 1913 as well. Well, I think it's a mistake. And by the way, they also uh, questioned or even besmirched the credentials of uh, a guy from Germany by the name of Paul Warburg. He was a Jewish banker who went to the, who's 
he and others and maybe other relatives went to the United States and made a career there. And when the time came to introduce uh, a reform after the panic of 1907, uh, he joined that uh, commission or group which was to thresh out the problem and make a proposal on the basis of which the Federal Reserve was created. And all Paul Warburg did was he more or less copied the structure of the Reichsbank of Germany, of Imperial Germany, which was strictly on the basis of Adam Smith's real wills doctrine. The banking system had to be a commercial bank and its assets were to be restricted to real bills to the exclusion of treasury bills, accommodation bills, uh, anticipation bills and all the others. And it worked in Germany. It worked beautifully. It financed the big uh, German industries and uh, created an incredible prosperity in Germany uh, which took place in that period between the Franco-Prussian Wars and the outbreak of World War I. And I think Paul Warburg was a, an honest man. He did to the best of his ability what was supposed to be done and the Federal Reserve Bank uh, banks were fashioned on that model. And the model was good, and there were blemishes, but that could have been taken care of. It's a tragedy, an absolute historical tragedy, that the war broke out about the same time when the Federal Reserve Banks opened their door for business. Because rather than becoming a commercial bank based on the real bill, it became an engine to finance World War I. Remember, the United States was a neutral country between 1914 and 1917, but it was not neutral as far as finance was concerned, because the United States, especially because of the money-creating power of the Federal Reserve immediately got involved in financing the war in Europe on the side of the Allied powers. Immediately, from day one. They couldn't care less about real bills, about self-liquidating credit, <coughs> they just monetized against the law. It was illegal according to Federal Reserve Act of 1913 to monetize uh, government bonds, but they did. And uh, the money was used through intermediaries to finance the war in, in Europe. I mean, people like Ford, Henry Ford, predicted that the war will last a few months and then uh, the government will run out of money, gold that is, and when this happens, that's the end of war. They have to make peace, as simple as that. And of course, he forgot that there was the Federal Reserve, which could 
keep the war going to the bitter end. And that's what happened. And uh, what the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 did was to uh, prescribe a heavy penalty uh, to an ordinary commercial bank which or Federal Reserve Bank which allowed government bonds as collateral for extending credit. It had to be real bills. It's written in the law. You can check it. Go and read it. It had to be real bills. And if the Federal Reserve Bank was short of real bills, made up the difference with government bonds, then a progressive and very heavy penalty was uh, imposed on the bank, which forced the bank to go back and increase its inventory of, of portfolio of real bills and bring down the other. It's not that they were forbidden to have government bonds and government paper in their portfolio, but as far as the credit, the outstanding was concerned, which is Federal Reserve notes and Federal Reserve deposits, it had to be real bills, nothing else. Actually, 40% gold, cash gold, gold coins or gold in other forms, and 60% at the outside. In other words, it could not fall below that. And the rest, real bills. That's according to the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. And uh, if the real bills were not there, then the penalty came. Now, one trouble with the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was that the enforcement was entrusted on the treasury. So in other words, the treasury was going to levy the penalty. But if the treasury forgot to levy it, well, too bad. And that's exactly what happened. From the treasury's point of view, it was a, a wonderful thing that treasury bills could there is a word, English word, uh, outcrowd, or out, crowd out the real bills. It was wonderful. The treasury could sell any amount of real bills because ultimately they would find a way into Federal Reserve banks, and that's the best market. Now, the treasury was not crazy to, to uh, destroy its best market for its own product. So to hell with the penalty. The important thing is that the treasury bills and bonds and what else will find their markets. If the big market will not buy them, too bad. But 
there's a cozy place waiting for these bills in the Federal Reserve Bank portfolios. As simple as that. So that's what happened. That unfortunately the war and the opening of Federal Reserve Banks coincided and there was no time to try out this uh, otherwise reasonable plan for a commercial uh, bank experiment. The Federal Reserve Bank as it was conceived. Well, unfortunately a book was written by Edward <coughs> Griffiths, I think is the name. I, I met him and a good man, but the book he wrote The Creature creatures of Jekyll, Jekyll Island. Now, Jekyll Island is an offshore uh, island somewhere where in Georgia or some of the southern states, and it was privately owned. And according to this story presented by Griff, uh, Griffith, uh, it was a, a conference, a secret conspiratorial conference was called by the moguls of Wall Street, bankers like J.P. Morgan and others, and they hatched out, uh, the year was 1907 or something, hatched out a plan to have this Federal Reserve System created stealthily, surreptitiously, and imposing it on the nation against the interest of the people. Uh, that's a fable as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't think that that was the case. They, I'm not saying that uh, those uh, that conference never took place, but it's very doubtful that uh, uh, that was the only important thing and whatever they decided there happened because they were powerful and wealthy and all that. I think this proposal to create the Federal Reserve System went through the proper channels and it was uh, uh, studied, criticized and even uh, corrected or uh, adjusted by academia, experts, practicing bankers, others, even the people. It took years, but this all took place as it properly should. And uh, all input was incorporated in it. There were mistakes left, as we are human and this thing, these things happen, but to say the whole thing was the result of a conspiracy is not only too far-fetched, but it's simply untrue. I'm not a, an apologist for the Federal Reserve. It's a ghastly institution as it exists today. But it happened because it was corrupted from day one by this historical coincidence of the need to finance the war in Europe. And those who were in charge, they were guilty of violating the law. The law didn't allow that. But they did it nevertheless. And of course they used patriotic uh, 
reasons or what you can always whip up sentiment in favor of war by hook or crook. Anyhow, the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 I consider as an acceptable document subject to various uh, improvements, one of which is that the Federal, that the uh, U.S. Treasury should not be put in charge to enforce the law when it comes to it's, it's uh, what's the word, it's conflict uh, uh, of interest. As simple as that. So some other agency should be charged with levying the penalty. If a Federal Reserve Bank violates the law, then they should come down and penalize them, and that would set the thing right, as envisaged by the original act. Another thing is it is not spelling out the problem with borrowing short and lending long, you know, and, other, and matching maturities, and there are several others. And uh, I consider these honest mistakes which could have been uh, corrected as the system evolved. Did it, had it had a chance to uh, be implemented properly, which it never was. But the big trouble came after the war because the victorious powers in their wisdom decided that uh, they should go back to the gold standard. That wasn't the issue that they didn't want to. They did want to go back to it, but without the real bill system, which of course was the basis of the Federal Reserve system should have worked. But for various reasons, one of which I tried to explain, I may not be, uh, that may not be the only one, and uh, you might think of others, and, uh, but it never happened. They dismissed the idea of multilateral trade, they wanted bilateral, and uh, therefore, after the war, the Federal Reserve didn't act as a commercial bank, but it acted as a government bank subject to the whims and fences of the politicians. So there it was uh, in the 1920s, there were several bubbles. Bubble number one was the bond market bubble, which burst in 1921. What happened was that the market in U.S. Treasury bonds collapsed. Very. This is not easy to find, but Benjamin Anderson will tell you the full story in his book. Uh, if you read Friedman and Anna Schwartz, you won't find it. And none of the textbooks used at universities will tell you the story. But the story is that 
the bond market in U.S. Treasury bonds collapsed in 1921, which immediately sent up the interest rate in those days, 6%, 7%, was unheard of, but the, uh, that's what happened. And the price collapsed, and this took the individual banks outside the Federal by surprise, because they couldn't balance the books anymore. They, they carried a lot of treasury paper on their balance sheet and created a hole in the balance sheet. They had the liabilities, but they couldn't match it with valid assets. So these bankers didn't know. They were honest people in those days. Bankers, by and large, were honest. I mean, ordinary commercial bank bankers. But they didn't, they didn't understand what's happening. That was considered their best assets, U.S. Treasury paper. And now they have this big hole in their balance sheet, outstanding liabilities without the proper assets. So what happened? Well, they invented what today they call open market operations. The idea is very simple. The idea is that the Federal Reserve has to go to the open market and buy U.S. Treasury paper, bonds, notes, bills, and thereby raising the price, pushing down interest rates, and use them as collateral against Federal Reserve credit. That is, Federal Reserve notes, Federal Reserve deposits. To hell with the act of Federal Reserve Act of 1930. Who is interested? It's an old hat completely out of sync with modern thoughts, you see. Why not repeal the act? No, that would create all kinds of uncertainty in the market. And it's not a good idea. Just do it quietly as a little housekeeping change, which after all, every once in a while, every household has to make. And then people will take it. They don't know what's, they don't understand the Federal Reserve Act. And if experts make noises, we just have to quietly retire them, or bribe them, or blackmail them, or whatever. You have to silence them. And that's exactly what they did. They illegally created this situation which put the whole thing upside down. It was supposed to be a commercial paper based banking system with self-liquidating credit, these real bills. And then they surreptitiously replaced the assets which the bank, Federal Reserve Banks have, with government paper. Now, you might say, well, 
So what? The assets are assets, government assets. You are prejudiced against them. Well, this is not it. But there is a consequence, and this is the consequence. And I hope uh, Keith or others who are competent uh, here presently will make a comment on this. I, uh, <laughs> uh, we are running out of time as usual. But the speculators, the bond speculators, are smart, uh, is a smart lot. They know that the Federal Reserve, as a consequence of this open market operation, principle will have to make periodic trips to the open market to replenish uh, the uh, portfolio of government bonds because without them they cannot issue more Federal Reserve credit. Federal Reserve notes, Federal Reserve deposits. Uh, just like the uh, human beings have the urge sometimes to go to the bathroom, the Fed has to go not to the bathroom, but to the open market. And, and the bond speculators take notice of that. And they've discovered the periodicity of this, that it happens at regular intervals. So all they have to do is to go to the bond market and preempt the Fed, buy up the bonds, and then turn around, and then the Fed comes, and they just dump the bonds in the lap of the Fed at a higher price. And the profit is theirs, and the profit is risk-free. Believe it or not, there is such a thing as risk-free profits. Why? Because of the open market operation, which was surreptitiously, for political reasons, put into place. Now, I, I think I have spoken enough, but I would appreciate some comments. Uh, I, can, I can speak a little bit to that. So today, because of QE2, the Fed has to buy approximately $100 billion of bonds per month. They announced the schedule of what they, <laughs> they will be buying. So speculators, please take notice. Okay, worse than that. Let me tell the story. Each thing this is crazier than the last one. So they have a schedule which is almost every day. And some days there are two, but it's like the morning and the afternoon. The actual open market operations, which uh, are run by a guy named Brian Sack for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, is delegated to a team of three people. There's a guy in his early 30s who's supervising two recent college grads that are 21 years old that are doing all of this, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of buying. This little team of three people meets with big banks in New York on a regular basis. <laughs> what they're discussing, what the complex interest might be, uh, nobody knows. Um, there's a website called zerohedge.com that is running uh, predictions as to what the bond, what bonds the Federal Reserve uh, is going to buy. And they have a prediction rate of better than 85%. <laughs> um, the, latest, the latest scandal that they're exposing is even worse than what you just said, how they, uh, the dealers can front run the Fed and they buy it. Not only, first of all, the time horizon has shrunk. The Fed is now monetizing bonds that the dealers bought a week or two weeks ago. That's how, that's how obvious it's become. 
And the uh, what Vero had to done is it analyzed all of the recent the term is called KSIP when they actually each bond a number. They analyzed the KSIPs to see which ones are trading at a slight discount and which ones are trading at a slight premium. The best deal for taxpayers would be, of course, the ones that are cheap. And then pointing out that the Federal Reserve, of course, is buying the ones that are premium. And on top of that, there's a big ass spread in both directions. So this is an operation to give money to the big to the big banks, what this is. And they're very successful at doing that. And to testify the, to the truth of the story, this was all published by the New York Times. It's there. You find it there, the story uh, of these three junior guys with absolute lack of experience. Well, then the caption on the uh, zero hedge, I think, was the caption. And they said, these people don't even have a Bloomberg terminal. <laughs> so how do we even know what the prices are supposed to be? I don't understand why the New York Times would touch that story, because it doesn't happen very often, and uh, it completely discredits, but of course most people just don't read this because it's esoteric or uh, they don't care, they don't care, but it's on record, it's in the New York Times. Uh, uh, and, and there are follow-up stories. That's absolutely incredible. And then no comment as far as university departments of economics or monetary science is concerned. No comment. They are not going to get involved in a discussion whether this is right or wrong or proper or improper or criminal or not. They are not going to get involved. And you could not provoke them into a discussion. You, you couldn't. I tried, believe me. I talked to several, uh, especially when I was in San Francisco. Uh, Sandy was there too. I had the opportunity to talk to uh, university economists. And I said, well, look, this is check kiting. It's the same, except that it's done by the government. So if it's illegal for private companies and private individuals, why should we allow? It's a Ponzi scheme. And Madoff did say something. It's also illegal in the US for the Federal Reserve to buy directly from the Treasury. No. They can't go to the Treasury option and buy it. So it's somewhat of a scandal that they the banks are buying it, and a week later, the Fed is buying it off the banks. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, what, what's the point of all this? But, I, but I, my personal theory is they're running such a uh, huge deficit, the Treasury is, that without this quantitative easing, how could they possibly find a market for that amount of paper? Yeah. Without the Fed there to monetize it. Yeah. So I think, and that may be why the Economic departments don't want to comment because they all support quantitative easing. You know, because they all support the fiscal stimulus yeah. of running a 1.7 trillion dollar deficit. Yeah. Well, how are you going to run that deficit without the Fed's monetizing? Yeah. Now, please do understand this: that the Fed is still not allowed to create money out of the thin air. What happens is the Fed has to own government bonds, 
outright, not print one, but own one. They cannot, they don't have the right to print Federal Reserve notes based on thin air. They've got to own outright the Treasury bond, and the Treasury is not supposed to sneak these bonds into the portfolio of the Fed. They just have to have it as an investment, owned outright. Now, when they have this and they want to issue Federal Reserve notes, they take these bonds, owned outright, to somebody who's called a Federal Reserve agent. And this Federal Reserve agent is not an employee of the Fed, it's an employee of the U.S. government. And they have to put this down as collateral. And then the Federal Reserve agent gives them the green light to go ahead and print the Federal Reserve notes or create deposits, create Federal Reserve credit only after this is put down, deposited with the Federal Reserve agent. And I doubt it, but I have no means to check on this. I doubt that they have Treasury paper owned outright, unless the Treasury sneaks into their portfolio these things. You see? So in other words, this quantitative easing is not as simple as, as the financial commentators pretend that the Fed goes out and creates money and then buys the bonds. It's not. Because before they can pay for those bonds in the open market, or even if they buy it directly from the Treasury, they have to have a, an earlier issue of bonds which they deposit with the Federal Reserve agent. Only then are they able to create the credit with which they can buy new bonds from the market or from the Treasury directly. By the way, the Federal Reserve Act does not allow them to go to the Treasury and buy directly. It's an open market operation. In other words, the market has to approve the price at which the exchange takes place, which is extremely crucial for the rest of society because that is determining the rate of interest. And all this is ignored, swept aside, bypassed. Complete uh, anarchy as far as the law is concerned. Nothing is sacred. Whatever the law says is ignored. The Constitution we don't even mention. What is old fashioned document ready for scrapping. <laughs> so the reporter in the New York Times, I think it was the New York Times, who said uh, the Constitution that's over a hundred years old and nobody can understand it anymore. How <laughs> <laughs> true. Please, any comments? Especially if they don't want. Hmm? Especially if they don't want. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? I think that's it. Thank you very Thank much you very indeed, much. Professor.